I had a, a semi-professional, I would say, cyclist. He was uh, getting ready for a tour and uh, we started eccentric cycling. The first three weeks go by, his uh, coach and his uh, teammates were blown away with how his performance increased by doing only twice a week. So uh, he was performing like never before. This is Dr. Yorgos Mavropoulos talking about the benefits of eccentric cycling. Not only did Yorgos do his PhD on eccentric cycling, but he's a man on a mission to get more people doing eccentric exercise because he believes everyone needs it and it has the power to be our generation's industrial revolution in exercise. This might be why it's made its way to World Tour Cyclists, which we'll get into a little bit later. But first, a confession. When the topic of eccentric cycling was mentioned as a potential episode of the podcast, I wasn't so excited. And I wasn't the only one. I can't say I was like, I wasn't super excited about this topic because probably just because I hadn't heard of it that much before. But just as Cyrus has changed his mind after talking to Yorgos, I have too. It's something that I'll actually keep an eye on now as stuff comes out for sure. Um, and yeah, you're a, a very good salesman, Georges, because I uh, wasn't thinking I would be anywhere near persuaded to consider it. Uh, so yeah, um, I'm now now thinking about it a lot more than I was two hours ago. <laughs> this conversation ignites a certain curiosity when Yorgos says things like this. It's uh, something magical that we have for the first time as a society ability to do. It's like having a drug that we didn't have access to before and now we do because we have motors. And uh, yeah, our muscles are extremely sensitive to it. They they adapt very quickly and they adapt uh, with some very, very good adaptations from both clinical populations, healthy people and athletes. So uh, there is untapped potential there. Jason and Cyrus sat down and spoke to Yorgos about eccentric cycling and its benefits for cyclists. And we've all come a long way with the understanding that cycling training and modern life is missing a fundamental component of movement, eccentric movement. And it's here that there is a potential that gains could be made. Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast. The podcast where scientists, pro cyclists and cutting edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance, science and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by me, Cyrus Monk, a professional cyclist and cycling coach. Me, Dr. Jason Boynton, a sports scientist and cycling coach. And then there's me, Damien Roos, a professional cycling coach. Today, eccentric cycling and its potential for improving performance in cyclists. At the 2018 Australian National Elite Men Road Race Championships, Luke Durbridge went down hard. Durbridge has gone down. He's overshot the corner and there'll be no catching Simon Clark for Luke Durbridge. Let's hope the damage isn't too bad. But Luke Durbridge, the front wheel just going out from underneath him and Clark... This put him on the back foot for the season ahead. So when looking for ways to speed up recovery and get back into shape after the crash, his performance team at Mitchelton's got 
advised and eccentric cycling intervention at Jason and Yorgos's university, Edith Cohen University in Perth, Australia. I remember the day where I came out of my office and across the hallway, we have one of the labs with the eccentric bikes in it. And I was like, well, who is, what? <laughs> Why, Luke Dierberg is here in the lab getting trained by Yorgos. This is so funny. This is pretty surreal. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of how life went at ECU sometimes. So I was trained with uh, Luke Derberts, for those that uh, know him. I was having him put his seat lower so his muscles were working at a longer length when uh, he was cycling eccentrically. Any feedback on how that work went for him or how it felt or anything like that after the intervention? So look, uh, he was brought to me. He wanted just to try it in the beginning. I didn't know that he would be so impressed and wanting to continue. That's why I didn't do any baseline tests. But uh, basically, again, his coach was uh, blown away with how stronger he got all of a sudden with just, I, I think we're doing once or twice, twice a week of eccentric cycling, 15 minutes of eccentric cycling in total, 30 minutes with uh, breaks. And then he had an event, but in that event, he got injured. So, But he was first. He was leading uh, before that. So he told me, look, and it's, he was telling me that really changed the game. It does seem like Luke is an outlier in the World Tour, as I haven't heard of any other cyclists at that level doing eccentric cycling. You will understand why as we go through this topic, but I can already understand that there is something to eccentric cycling, but we're getting way ahead of ourselves. So let's take a couple of steps back and firstly, get to know our guest. Yorgos is another early career researcher and a great introduction from Jason, having spent time together while doing their PhDs. So Jason took the lead on this one. First off, Yorgos, why don't you tell us about yourself and how you got here today uh, in terms of just your background and that type of stuff and then, yeah. What's your, what's your deal, man? Yeah, my deal. Well, first of all, uh, Jason is calling me Yorgos because he's a friend. That's how my name is pronounced in Greek. But everyone reading my name should read it Georgios, right? But uh, yeah, well, I have been invited here to talk about eccentric cycling and the magic it can do for concentric cyclists, I guess. So you're not from around here. You're not Australian for once. We don't have someone that isn't Australian. I'm not from around here. You can tell it from my from my accent. I'm from Greece. Yes, I came to Australia to uh, study eccentric exercise. That's what I started. I came to do my PhD and I did it on eccentric cycling. And specifically, I looked at how the muscle and also the connective tissue of the muscle, not just the muscle fibers, respond both after a single session of eccentric cycling of different intensities and also after long-term training. So yeah, I looked at what happens to the muscle. We took biopsies. We looked at the connective tissues of the muscle or else known as the extracellular matrix, the hormones. Uh, after that, I moved to do a postdoc and that's when I started using eccentric exercise as medicine. We were trying to increase muscle mass in men with prostate cancer who undergo androgen suppression therapy. So basically, these men have no testosterone. So as you can understand, it's extremely difficult to build muscle. And now I'm running clinical trials in people with cancer. I always talk about a little bit about how the guests connect with the podcast. And so you and I actually go 
pretty far back now. We're, we're up to six years, right? So you did your PhD at ECU. So we've been colleagues for yes. a while now. Anyhow, let's talk about, first, I think the place to start for the listeners, I think, is maybe just a little bit of like the easy background and just kind of build from there up to the pinnacle of does this work? How would it work for trained cyclists? And I think the first place to start is how does muscle contract? How does that happen? This is important for this, right? So, well, we have to go very superficial here because things tend to get very complicated when we go down into the molecule level, even to the to the muscle fiber and also the molecules, how they interact to contract the muscle. It's basically down there is uh, magic. But uh, in a basic sense, the muscle, when it receives an electrical signal, it is activated and tries to shorten and that's when the muscle shortens it pulls the bone through the tendon and we have movement right so this is how the muscle contracts and of course we have different types of muscle contraction we have the concentric contraction which is the shortening of the muscle so when you're cycling you're basically using only this contraction so you are shortening your quadriceps right and all the other muscles of the lower limbs to push down on the pedal, and that's when you produce energy. That's the concentric contraction. I just want to stop real quick and get a little bit finer detail there with how the myosin and actin works within the muscle contraction. If you think of the myosin, uh, I always think of the myosin, it looks kind of like a bunch of golf clubs, like a bunch of woods hanging out of a out of a, a golf bag and basically if you imagine those were able to kind of move and ratchet and if you would imagine an actin molecule those heads would ratchet on the molecule and that's how the contraction happens is a bunch of these little heads are ratcheting along an actin filament i guess we want to call that i think that's important to kind of note in that they only really like to move in that one direction if you think of it they but as we all know the muscle has to go the other direction right and then we were talking about the types of muscle contractions right so those would be Mm -hmm. concentric eccentric and isometric i don't know if there's anything that's developed that's new out of that these days i've heard some arguments that isometric is really eccentric but won't get into that but um yeah so as you were saying, the concentric shortens and the eccentric lengthens the muscle, right? And isometric is obviously when you're putting a force and you're contracting, but it's not moving. But I think importantly, eccentric doesn't lengthen the muscle. It's as the muscle is lengthening. Yes. So the action is still to in the same direction yep. by those things, but it's as the muscle is lengthening. Yorgos has a great way for you to understand these three types of muscle actions or movements. If we can put it visually, I think the best way to help people visualize this is with a dumbbell contraction, so bicep curls. So imagine you're holding a dumbbell on your hands and you're trying to do bicep curls, right, to lift the the dumbbell. When you lift the dumbbell, you're shortening your biceps That pulls the tendon and makes the dumbbell go up, right? If you hold the dumbbell at 90 degrees of uh, elbow angle and it doesn't move, 
obviously the muscle is doing something to keep the weight there, but it's not moving the muscle. So the, the length of the muscle is not moving. That's the isometric, same length. Now, the eccentric part of the movement is when you're lowering the uh, dumbbell. Obviously, you are not just letting go for the dumbbell to fall down. Your muscle is doing something. Now, the muscles can only shorten, but in this instance, in this uh, movement, they're trying to shorten, but the output of the force is less than the actual gravitational force of the dumbbell. Thus, and that's the definition of the eccentric movement, is when the muscle is activated and trying to resist an external lengthening force. Let me go through that again. There are three types of muscle actions, concentric, eccentric, and isometric. When you do a dumbbell curl, you can contract the muscles with each of these contractions. So imagine that you're at the starting position of a dumbbell curl. So you're holding a dumbbell with a straight arm with your palm facing forward. Now imagine a bicep curl, which is lifting the dumbbell up by bending at the elbow and lifting the dumbbell to your shoulder. This part of the movement is concentric. Then if you lower the dumbbell back down, that's an eccentric movement. And finally, if you lift the dumbbell back up, but you stop halfway, so you hold it steady with an elbow angle of 90 degrees, that's an isometric movement. And I think that force relationship with the muscle is kind of important to point out where if it's concentric, then the muscle is applying more force than is being applied to the muscle. And with the eccentric, you're going to have more force applied to the muscle than the muscle is applying to the load or whatever you want to call it. So um, those are all kind of important ways to kind of wrap your head around these things. So these eccentric contractions and concentric contractions are very different. And one of these components that kind of sticks out and should be noted is eccentrics contractions association with delayed onset muscle soreness or DOMS, and then also with muscle damage. In the real world, we can kind of somewhat understand this intuitively. If you think about cycling, doesn't really have much eccentric contraction in it, except for a few cases, which we'll talk about those really quick. But like think of cycling versus running and think of how much soreness you would get from running versus cycling. Do you have any uh, thoughts on that, Jorgis, in terms of eccentric contractions association with DOMS and muscle damage? Well, uh, yes, that's a, a big part of eccentric exercise research. Uh, that's basically half my PhD. I would say that, uh, first of all, it's a bit wrong to say that eccentric is a contraction. Contraction means something shortening, but the muscle is not shortening. But to help people understand, yes, we call them mistakenly eccentric contractions. When you are unaccustomed to a specific movement, eccentric movements, and you start doing it and it has adequate intensity, volume, and muscle length, you will get sore. And you can you have felt that when you go to the gym for the first time after, after a while, or if you go for a run, and especially if you go a bit downhill as well, that's when you start getting sore. As you said correctly, cycling, traditional cycling, has, I would say, zero eccentric uh, muscle actions. That's why you don't really get sore after cycling. It's very complicated how soreness works. 
we still don't understand it. It is my educated guess that the secret lies for the biggest part in the extracellular matrix, the connective tissue. That gets damaged and it needs repairing. But uh, yeah, if you're unaccustomed and you don't know how you're doing eccentric exercise, if you just jump into it without any preparation, eccentric exercise is extremely potent. And to that potency, you can either use it to have like big adaptations very quickly, or if you go over the line, it's going to damage you. When Yorga says cycling has zero eccentric muscle actions, it's not entirely true, as there may be some eccentric movement in, say, track cycling. But Yorga is really quick to dismiss this. Kind of an aside, it's important to mention strength training because a lot of cyclists do strength training. And if you do strength training, then you are you're adding eccentric exercise into your training in that way. I mean, if you're a triathlon, you're going to be doing some running, you might get some uh, eccentric exercise that way. And this for sure, like when you're talking about muscle damage and soreness, if the times I'm sore during the week is the 24 to 48 hours after strength training, the soreness from a ride, it doesn't hurt anywhere near as much. The eccentric muscle damage hits different, that's for sure. And yeah, it uh, that's where you really feel the pain within the muscle. And I think the thing to establish here is that I think there's really good evidence that so far from intervention studies to demonstrate that strength training does improve performance with trained cyclists. I think that's been reproduced enough now where we can kind of hang our hat on that and say, yes, it is true, especially with the stuff that's coming out of Ronestad's lab in some reproduction reproductions of one or two of his, at least one of his protocols in multiple studies. If someone wants to fight that, they can come on the podcast. If they're a physiologist, I'd love to actually debate that with someone. Yeah, and I will say I had admittedly was might have been too conservative on this and a bit of a Luddite. And I think it had to do, a lot to do with timing where I think around 2014, 2015, it was still kind of on the edge there with strength training and then more and better papers came out as I was in my PhD and I wasn't able to necessarily get a chance to read them. Jason brings up another important point here around how strength training doesn't sit well with the specificity principle of training. So maybe cyclists are better off doing something like eccentric training instead of strength training. Certainly, you have to do something very specific to the task that you're doing, right? You gotta train that. But after a while, your return on investment starts to plateau. So uh, imagine you have a lumberjack and he wants to get stronger. You can tell him to chop more wood or you can tell him to go to the gym and start lifting, right? That's going to increase his strength. If you just keep doing the same thing, uh, the muscle starts to adapt. So you got to challenge the same physiological system, which could be strength, which could be something else in different ways to make it adapt more uh, holistically, like you sure you can spend 20 hours on the bike doing just road bike every week. Yeah, you're going to get better, but you can do something sort of and challenge the muscle and just signal and challenge that system and get more bang for your back if you want to go yeah, it that way. Yeah, yeah. So some of the benefits that, that have come out just off the top of my head for the strength training outcomes for trained cyclists has to do with improvements in 
40 minute time trials and improvements in peak power outputs, uh, increases in sprint ability. And these are related to earlier application of torque in the pedal stroke, muscle hypertrophy. And yeah, so there's a number of things. There might also be an effect on economy that is also beneficial from strength training. Some of these have to be researched a little bit deeper, I think. But we do know in terms of on the other side that that the performance outcome is there. And I think for me, one of the convincing things of this isn't just they're adding in more load on and getting a benefit versus the group that maybe didn't put more load on. Uh, or one of the studies was that application of torque earlier within the pedal stroke, because that's something you can't necessarily get just from riding your bike more. And the downstream effects of that could potentially explain some of these improvements that you would see, aerobic improvements that you would see. But um, yeah, so I just wanted to stop and talk about that because we are, in some cases, using eccentric exercise within the training programs of cyclists and seeing benefit in that. But eccentric exercise is, if you have that umbrella, eccentric cycling is underneath that umbrella, right? So, so tell us what eccentric cycling is. How does that look? Well, it is true that when you're going to the gym to lift weights, you're doing a concentric motion to lift the weight. And on the way back, otherwise known as the negative phase or the lowering phase, that's your eccentric action. But the intensity and the volume that you can do of eccentric exercise, if you also have the concentric component versus the difference that I can produce in the lab with specialized equipment that do eccentric only, is the difference between uh, walking to running. So in the lab, we have specialized equipment that do eccentric-only work. And with eccentric-only work, you can overload the muscle up to 50% more. So if you can lift, let's say, in the bench press 100 kilos, going back, you can lower and resist 150. Plus, uh, the concentric part is actually what fatigues the muscle. That's what the, the shortening actually uses the ATP, the energy coin of the muscle. That's what produces lactate. And you're basically limited by the concentric phase, whereas the eccentric phase is six times more economical. So if you remove the concentric component, you can do way more intensity and way more volume. Now, what is eccentric cycling? It is not backward cycling. You cannot do it with your own bike. You need a bike that has a motor. And that motor produces the energy. It moves pedals, either forwards or backwards. And basically what you're doing is resisting the movement of the pedals. On your normal bike, what you would do is push down the pedals. On this bike, the pedals move on their own, so you just slow them down. Okay? So um, it can be done either upright or uh, recumbent, so horizontally. The bikes look like uh, gym bikes, like you would have the stationary bikes, but they are moving on their own. They have motors. And yes, they allow us to do eccentric-only cycling. Yeah, this is one thing that you always say when we bring up eccentric cycling is it's not just pedaling backwards. It's not the same as thing you do when you're trying to uh, recalibrate your core power meter on your bike. That's not eccentric cycling. That's concentric cycling when you're pedaling backwards. 
what it requires is that there has to be energy or something pushing against you in that kind of circular manner. And again, so that requires a bike that is plugged into something with a power source and has a motor on it. So be very clear on that of like, at least if you're doing eccentric contraction, then you know, there's a motor in it. So let's talk about what happens acutely during eccentric cycling biomechanically compared to the strength training seems to be like you have a higher relationship dealing with the principle of specificity. Would you agree with that? Yes, it's much more specific than squats for cyclists. The same muscles are activated in the same angles, basically. And uh, that's why I think it's uh, so potent for cyclists. Because, uh, yeah, specifically targeting the angles and the muscles that work. And then physiologically, what do you think is going on there that is different? One of the things that has come up in our conversations in the lab, being that I was doing thermal regulation was you pointed out that the body temperature is going to be hot. Like someone's going to be hotter. There's going to be more temperature within the muscle during eccentric contraction. Anything else physiologically that is going to be notably different with an eccentric cycling, you think? Well, the first time eccentric cycling was used was in 1952. Abbott had his wife. Actually, he connected two bikes back to back with a single chain. So he was cycling forwards, like concentrically normal cycling, and his wife on the other bike was trying to resist the pedals. And he would notice that even though he was so much stronger than his wife, his wife was just putting a bit of force and she was stopping him. And it was so much easier for her. And speaking of that, with eccentric cycling, it's way more uh, metabolically easy to do. It's basically six times easier for the body in terms of energy production and uh, oxygen consumption to do eccentric cycling for the same power level Mm -hmm. if you compare it with concentric. Well, we'll have to remember to put a pin in that and discuss that when it comes to intervention because I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. It's cool to know acutely, but yeah. Yeah. But anything at the molecular and cellular level, because again, when we're talking about those myosin heads and how they travel on actin, if you got to think about what's happening at that level... When you are extending that muscle with force, those molecular machines are working the opposite way than they really want to do. And it just, I can't imagine what it would look like. What's all those things just like, imagine just like something with a ratchet on it and just like pulling against it, all the damage that would happen to those little machines there. But yeah, what are, you, what are your thoughts? I will try to explain it a bit easily yeah you're probably way better at me (laughs) like think of a rope on the roof and you're trying to climb the rope now when you're doing a concentric action like when you're cycling and you're trying to shorten the muscle those myosins actually they're like climbing up the rope so they're pulling the rope and the muscle just shortens Uh, Because there are a lot of these uh, ropes and a lot of these climbers just climbing and sorting the muscle. Now, when you're doing an eccentric action, the muscle is starting to uh, stretch. The climbers are trying, so something is pulling away the rope, so the the climbers are trying to pull it back. But we're talking about mycin and actin. There is another component in the muscle that is really activated, and that's titan. And that's something that we have uh, discovered in the past... uh, how much was it? 
one, 15 years, 20 years, titan, that's a huge protein. And that's basically a spring. Imagine from the end to end of a sarcomere, the unit of the muscle, of the muscle fiber, we have a spring that connects from end to end because sometimes the muscle is stretched so far that the myosin and actin heads, those climbers, are not overlapping anymore, so it wouldn't be possible to close the muscle. So we have this spring to bring back the muscle. Now, the way our muscles, and sorry if this is getting too complicated, I hope uh, people are following, Um, the way our muscles are basically told signal to contract is by filling them in with calcium, okay? Now, Titan, that spring, is sensitive to calcium. So when the muscle is flooded with calcium, the climbers, the acting heads, are trying to grab onto the mycin to close the muscle. And also Titan is also wrapping on them to be ready to come back. Now, during the eccentric muscle actions, as I said, they're trying to resist the pulling away from the, from the stretching of the muscle, those climbers, the mycin acting heads. And also the titan, the spring that we have, is doing a lot of work. It's really trying to pull the muscle back. And that, this is why we have this extra strength in the eccentric component. It's because the spring, the titan, is really pulling back and trying to prevent the muscle from getting stretched. I don't have a simpler way of explaining what Yorgos was just describing. It's just more important to understand that the eccentric action is stronger than the concentric action. This is the sound of the Grucox eccentric trainer the eccentric ergo yorgos used in his study. And when it comes down to the equipment needed to do eccentric cycling sessions, you will start to understand why it isn't more popular. On the market for bikes that do this, generally what you have like a recumbent bike sometimes, and sometimes you'd have more of a upright, like standard configuration of the bike. Uh, Do you have any preferences between either of those or like what the advantages or disadvantages of those are? Unfortunately, there are very, very few models on the market. I think, if I'm not mistaken, there are, well, there are less than 10 uh, bikes around, the, uh, yeah, models around the world available now. Uh, I would say that uh, I'm not satisfied with any one of them. Mm-hmm. And especially if you are, you're knowledgeable on a subject a lot and you're using different equipment, you start to want more, right? Uh, I personally would prefer a recumbent bike because with the upright, you know, the pedals are coming towards your body and you try to resist them. So you're lifted off the seat. So you have to pull yourself down on the bike. And uh, because of the upper body, the the work that the upper body does, and especially the forearms, uh, your heart rate goes up and you're fatiguing that way. Whereas with a recumbent bike, uh, you have the seat to push against you and you can just focus on uh, on resisting the pedals. And uh, some people would say that, oh, you know, but um, I would prefer working on an upright bike because that's more specific to my cycling position. Look, when you're doing eccentric cycling, you're not practicing your uh, technique there that you would do on the road cycling. What you're doing is actually trying to improve the 
the musculoskeletal system. You really don't get any technique uh, in mind. That's, that's not why you're doing eccentric cycling. Even though with some of the people, I've, I've trained some elite uh, cyclists, they told me that even though they're elite, they're able to better concentrate on uh, their movement and start applying force better. But that's anecdotal evidence. That hasn't been researched yet. I would still prefer the recumbent bike because I can uh, go with higher intensities and longer durations and just focus on challenging both the muscle and the connective tissues, which uh, include the fascia of the muscle, the tendons and the ligaments, the forgotten structures when it comes to muscle performance. Let's talk a little bit about what we know currently about eccentric cycling interventions. My perspective is, is that when it comes to eccentric cycling research, there seems to be a lot more published within diseased and untrained populations. But let's take a little bit of time to briefly highlight the research that is found in these populations. And um, I think your research kind of lies within this realm. So we'll take a little bit of time to talk about your specific findings from the two papers that you have published. So I don't know, you can take it away. Do you want to talk about your specific stuff first? Or do you want to talk about the general findings? Maybe some of the findings that made you interested within doing research within cycling, uh, eccentric cycling? A bit of both, I guess. Uh, unfortunately, eccentric exercise in general it's it's not popular and it's uh, uh, very interesting that this is still not popular because we can uh, we have so much potential especially on our today's busy world we can just do 10 minutes per week and get profound adaptations our muscles are really really sensitive to eccentric stimuli because they're damaging to us they're very potent so our muscles adapt really really quickly to not allow these stimuli to damage it, to damage the muscles. But uh, still, uh, everything we know, everything we do with eccentric exercise is uh, arcane knowledge. It's closed behind laboratory doors. And uh, uh, part of my, my, my mission, I guess, is to change that because we need it. We need it. We used to live in a world where we would be exposed to eccentric actions. Imagine when we were living for th- tens of thousands of years before in caves, our environment was unpredictable and that's unpredictability when you're trying to, when you're exposed to a force and you're trying to gain your balance or resist it, right? So we would uh, change direction, we would uh, jump down. These are all eccentric actions. But today we have this uh, potent uh, ability to do eccentric exercise and we have amazing equipment and we're not taking advantage of it. Uh, I'll interject uh, and then I'll probably redirect. Uh, But one of the studies that I remember talked about during my master's and during my coursework around eccentric contraction was at some point someone, they had found that muscle damage, there was more muscle damage within eccentric exercise. And they decided, you know, what would be a great idea is maybe we'll just make gym equipment that only does concentric exercise so you don't have to feel the muscle soreness so they came up with all this i don't know if it was nautilus or who it was that just came up with all of this gym equipment that you only moved it in the concentric way and then the machine would help you 
lower the weight back or whatever, so you could do another concentric action. And what they found in those studies was that the gains, the muscle strength gains in the hypertrophy was less, if I, uh, if I recall right. Do you remember any of those studies like that? Not really, but uh, that's actually a failure of, uh, yeah. I believe that when we finally understand how important eccentric exercise is, how to perform it correctly and not just jump into it doing, doing it like uh, as much as we can and get damaged and we th- say that it's bad, it's going to be like the industrial revolution. So when we discovered the dumbbell and the barbell, that was the agricultural revolution for exercise science and exercise in general. When we start integrating eccentric exercise and eccentric exercise medicine specifically, for clinical population, I think that's going to be our industrial revolution in exercise. So what specific outcomes is Yorgos talking about here, especially in diseased or untrained populations? Eccentric cycling is a bit under-researched when it comes to eccentric exercise again, so uh, that's a smaller part. Eccentric exercise, however, has been shown to improve muscle growth a lot, muscle mass, so you can get a lot of muscle with very little uh, exercise. So basically, there are studies out there that showed just one session per week in healthy ambulatory 20-year-olds, right? We're not talking about diseased population. Just ambulatory people can increase their muscle mass, but just one session, maybe 15 minutes a week. In my study, what I have shown is, and I did that with 20-year-old healthy students. Some of them were going to the gym, but uh, they wouldn't be sedentary. They wouldn't be diseased. So I had them do eccentric cycling three times a week for eight weeks. Each session was 10 minutes. So you can imagine it was a total of 30 minutes a week for eight weeks. We had an average increase in the cross-section area of the muscle verified with ultrasound by 30%. Some people had increases of over 35% in cross-sectional area. Their static strength increased, their peak power output during a 10-second concentric sprint increased. And what I was looking for was specifically the connective tissue. I believe that what happens outside of the muscle cell, the muscle fibers, is as important as what happens inside when it comes to adaptations. So I saw that... We have some proteins at the top of our muscle cells that sense stress and they translate that stress to protein synthesis. So we actually, when we did eight weeks of exercise, we got more of that sensors, those sensors, because we use them to attach the muscle fiber to the extracellular matrix stronger. But at the same time, they can sense more signal inside the muscle to increase protein synthesis. So uh, that was novel. And we're thinking that if you do eccentric cycling for a few weeks and then you do weights, you are going to get way more benefits in muscle growth from the weights if you have preceding eccentric cycling training because you increase your sensors. So uh, that was novel and we're still analyzing some data from that study. But uh, yes, basically very low commitment, just 30 minutes a week for eight weeks some people had more than 30% increase in cross-sectional area. Yeah, but in general, we see that uh, eccentric cycling is starting to become very popular in diseased populations, especially people who cannot exercise. 
people with cancer, people with COPD, people with uh, myopathies, um, multiple sclerosis, all those people who have lower levels of ability to uh, exercise and they need muscle because muscle is an extremely precious resource, suffer from atrophy. Eccentric exercise is starting to become a a cardinal intervention, unfortunately, only in research. This is all well and good, but we are interested in what eccentric cycling can do for trained cyclists. And this is where we just don't have a lot to work from. Like, there's only one study with trained cyclists. And considering the optimistic stance Yorgos holds for eccentric cycling, the outcome of this study might be a surprise for you. The two papers that you have published from your PhD around eccentric cycling. The first one is titled Comparison Between High and Low Intensity Eccentric Cycling of Equal Mechanical Work for Muscle Damage and the Repeated Bout Effect. And then you also have another one that came out last year that was Increases in Integrin ILK Richter AKT Proteins Muscle Mass and strength after eccentric cycling training. So that came out, like I said, last year. Those are both from your PhD. I would have been hanging out in the background when you were doing those, as you were doing your intervention study there. And I would have been right next to it in the in the environmental chamber. But let's get down to the brass tacks for the listeners here. They probably are happy for the disease population and untrained population. But what they what we really want to know is does this have any kind of effect within trained cyclists? And you sent me one paper and I didn't really find anything else out there that was used with trained cyclists. And so we have a paper called Eccentric Cycling Does Not Improve Cycling Performance in Amateur Cyclists. And this is by Paulson et al. in 2019. And this came out of uh, Bent Ronestad's lab. He's last author, so I'd imagine it was his lab. And he is the guy that has done a lot of the strength training stuff. So the title kind of gives away <laughs> kind of gives away the surprise, but we'll go through the methods and what they did to kind of figure this out. So they had something like 23 trained uh, cyclists, and they did five to eight two-minute intervals at 40 RPM, two times per week for 10 weeks. And that was, they had a high-intensity interval training intervention after that. There was a control group and an eccentric group. The eccentric group was obviously on an eccentric cycle, uh, pedaling backwards with the high force, yada, yada, yada. And then the control group is interesting. They did, I think they matched RPE and RPM. So they were almost doing like a, a strength endurance type efforts. Would you agree with that's kind of how you were seeing it, Cyrus, is these sound like the control sounds like a strength endurance. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's what I gathered as well from looking at that, that it was just the yeah, big gear located. Yep, yep. And so the results in the study was eccentric cycling induced hypertrophy of vastus lateralis and rectus femoris muscles. The next result was eccentric cycling resulted in improved isokinetic eccentric strength, which did not transfer to isokinetic concentric strength, nor to cycling sprint performance. Eccentric cycling changed the pedaling characteristics by an earlier lower peak torque during the pedaling stroke. Uh, And the eccentric cycling demonstrated possible unfavorable effects on WMAX and the 20-minute time trial that performance. 
So within the train group, with this study, it doesn't look so great. And it was really interesting to me, like how those two things compared between a few things. One, the strength training findings that you would see with trained endurance athletes. And then also kind of some of the more positive findings that you would, that you like you saw with your untrained or not specifically trained for cycling athletes, your healthy or not even athletes, it's just healthy college age adults. And so this was actually kind of funny because we, this is, we've had m- multiple lunch burrito conversations over this. And I was always like, show me the research with the trained cyclists where the benefit is, and I will start looking into it. I just want to see a performance outcome. And so far, this isn't super convincing. But uh, what are your thoughts on this guy here, your guess? Uh, that was, uh, to be honest, I can't recall right now. I think I searched, for, especially for this for podcast, but I don't think I found any other paper with... Uh, cyclists specifically now um yeah we still don't understand very well how to use eccentric cycling to uh uh, train cyclists and uh, i've trained elite cyclists and i've made the same mistake i guess that this group did i tried to go hard and if you go hard with eccentric exercise you start getting muscle a lot of muscle which uh, might uh, not be as uh, effective for cyclists because you know cyclists what they want to be is uh, strong they want to be aerobically fit and as small as possible to be light and not have to carry all that mass however i would have to say that one thing that i noticed in this paper is that the post training tests were done within a week after the last training session. And they were going hard in every... So they were doing very high-intensity eccentric cycling, all right? Now, I've done the same mistake too. I had a, a semi-professional, I would say, cyclist. Uh, he was uh, getting ready for a, a, a tour event. It's going to be a, a three-tour event. And uh, we started eccentric cycling. The first three weeks go by... His coach and his uh, teammates were blown away with how his performance increased by doing only twice a week. So uh, he was performing like never before. And then I tried to taper him for his uh, race, I guess. His, uh, yeah. So I, I performed the last eccentric cycling session, I think, six days before. Unfortunately, because the intensity was so high, he hadn't recovered yet, so his performance was bad. So I would say that's one thing, uh, that because I saw that the post-test was done within a week, so that might have impaired, if, especially if they have gone too far, and they were also doing concentric uh, training alongside it, okay, because that uh, you, you are not allowing the muscle to recover. But this is not how I would train uh, cyclists. So typically, these cyclists would um, go for long-duration rides. They would go for three-hour rides or four-hour rides. So it doesn't really make sense for them to be doing those kind of like two-minute sprints that they were doing, very high intensity. 
So I think they were touching on different systems. The concentric group got benefits because you would still get improvements in your longer duration performance if you are doing short sprints of two-minute sprints because you are engaging the same systems of uh, uh, production. But uh, with the eccentric group, I wouldn't go this way. I would go long and low intensity, similar to what you would be doing in your actual task. If they were track cyclists, I think it would work way better to do those sprints. Mm. Uh, but they didn't have a sprint benefit either. So, But I have some things in my notes here just to kind of note around the study as well. But one thing I will say is to be fair to you know eccentric cycling as an intervention, if I remember correctly, there was a few strength training papers with trained cyclists early on that did not see benefits with cyclists either. So sometimes it's just a matter of trying to figure out how to get the tweak the intervention so it actually works with the athletes. And so maybe someone will continue this work with trained athletes to see if they can change anything to get different outcomes. And I know we've said this before, but training studies are just so difficult to do and get an effect on anything. Like, And we just need to keep saying it so people understand that to actually get some things to show up with trained athletes is so difficult because the they're already at such a high percentage of their genetic ceiling a lot of the time that uh, yeah, to actually get a statistically significant result from a training intervention is really difficult to get that to show up in a study. So that's where study design really comes into it and it can be really tricky to come to any conclusion based on one or two studies. That's where we really just need to, to get more literature to actually be sure of any kind of intervention. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned statistical significance because that's another little bit about this study that I kind of pulled out and I was like not a huge fan of is that it was based off of magnitude-based inferences statistics. So I think we've talked about those on the show before. We have talked about magnitude-based inferences in the past, a method of stats developed to compensate for small populations in sports science research. There was a scandal a few years ago surrounding its use. I don't have any way of confirming that it's being used less, but let's hope it's not being used as much anymore because... What that usually happens with those is that you see false positives. I think that's what the outcome is. Jorgis is smiling over here. Yeah. And so it was funny, like using kind of a statistical method that you might expect false positives... They still didn't see anything. So even had the statistics kind of skewing in the direction and they still didn't see anything there. But some of the things that might have changed the results as well is the participants in both the controlled and, and experimental group were doing some sort of weight training prior to the study. You might have seen a different outcome had they just come into it straight and not done had weight training done before it. But of course, if they saw less results after dropping the weight training that might just show that the weight training might be a better way to go and in terms of weight training versus why weight training would be different than this well the weight training has a high load a very high load eccentric phase but also has a very high load concentric phase with that so that's very different so it could be it's not just about having introducing something eccentric into the cyclist training it might have something to do with having that high concentric 
load along with that high eccentric load. Another thing that was kind of interesting about how they did the study was the fact that they did hit afterwards. Now, that's a tricky way to run it because this is, I think I will give them props for doing that um, because it's going to be hard. I think most of these training studies are done in the preparation period, kind of off in the winter time. So it's, it's going to be highly hard to take high intensity interval training out of an inner, out of a cyclist's training and just put in this intervention without anything else with it. So yeah, it could, does come down to a, a little of a programming puzzle here of where, if we are going to do eccentric cycling, where do I put it? And is there any kind of negative effect on the kind of signaling pathways for the eccentric contraction that could happen because you're doing hit right after it? If the hit overpowered any of the, the, of the signaling pathways, then if you do it the other way, right, then you're looking at the interference principle, or I forget exactly what it is, but the, the problems that you have with the, um, what kind of training is it? Concurrent training? Yeah, the concurrent training uh, with Maria's stuff. So, yeah. yeah, the concurrent training literature would say you are going to interfere potentially with the eccentric cycling if you do hit before it. So, but maybe not that. So, I think there's still stuff to kind of, I wouldn't close the door on it yet. So, what you said before is uh, very important. Where would you put it? Actually, what they did, both groups did their either concentric or eccentric before, and then they did hit. However, after you do eccentric exercise, your muscles are very, very disrupted. Uh, it gets better, and that's the repeated bout effect. So you get very good at not getting uh, damage from eccentric exercise. But even if you're adapted, after eccentric, again, due to, the, to its insane potency, your muscles are... Yeah, I've had, for example, uh, just to give you an example in your head, I've had a, a guy... Uh, who was a bodybuilder, 120 kilos. He was deadlifting 300 kilos. And I had him do 15 minutes of low intensity, easy, light, eccentric cycling. So you would say that, yes, uh, this guy squats a lot. He's uh, used to eccentric exercise. But again, it's the difference between walking and running. After he jumped off this 15 minutes light uh, session, his legs were going like a baby giraffes. Uh, they were shaking. Now, what they did in this study, which I would change, is I would put the eccentric cycling at the end because then they maybe weren't able to perform 100% in the intervals afterwards. Look, and maybe we will find that eccentric cycling, look, it's not working for cyclists as we thought we are. So I'm not trying to defend it. But I'm saying, again, before you close the door, what I would change is instead of just doing sprints and then trying to do the hit, what I would do is do your normal time trials or like road cycling. And then at the end of the road cycling, when you have finished, do 10 minutes of low intensity, continuous, or at least in like not sprints, no high intensity. So low intensity, 10 to 20 minutes in total eccentric cycling twice a week. If you do it like that, if you don't try to taper it, if you don't try to assault the muscle hard, because then probably their muscles were not ready the next day the, for the next couple of days, so they were not performing well 
in their normal trainings. So yeah, for cyclists, what I would do and what I would challenge researchers to do is have the people do their concentric cycling, their hits, their trials, their uh, the normal cycling training in the beginning, and then have a group that does 10 to 20 sets of 30 seconds, low intensity, either eccentric exercise or concentric matched for effort. And then check uh, things like uh, cycling economy, even VO2 max, which I don't think it will be benefited by eccentric exercise. Maybe if you have uh, improvements in the pedaling economy and uh, strength and big power output, things like that. That's what I would consider a better inter- like uh, research. Yeah, so I just want to take a second to list off for the listeners some of the things that you can change within a eccentric training bouts or protocol that might change your outcomes. So we have one protocol here, but there's, you could still, as you said, you can change your intensity level. You could do it at a lower intensity for a longer period of time. You could change your cadence. You could change the lengths of the interval bouts or make them continuous, as you were saying. The number of times a week, you could change that. Uh, you could change the periodization and what period you're going to put that eccentric training in there. You, you can also change the, the direction going forwards or backwards, and you can change the muscle length. So these are th- still things that have to be investigated around this and might be worth looking at. Yeah, I have a few considerations if this was going to be something I'd implement or recommend. When you were saying that the power output is so much higher with the eccentric exercise because of the efficiency of the muscle, what is the relationship then with the energy expenditure? Are you actually expending more energy in doing that or is because it's efficient, it's the same or less? And how do you match that when you're doing eccentric bouts? So it depends, again, how you match it. The intensity is way higher when you have the same heart rate. If you try and match the power, of course, you can understand the same power. Eccentric exercise has much less cardiovascular demand. So your heart rate is lower. There is not production of lactate in the muscles. Your muscles are way more fresh when they do eccentric cycling at the same power level yeah so with the energy expenditure then so would it then be expending less energy for power match the question there then is not so much for trained cyclists but for regular cyclists if you're saying okay i won't i want to use this is for the everyday cyclists with sort of limited time i want to use eccentric side cycling because i don't have that much time does it then mean that uh they'll be if they're using cycling as a method for weight loss, which I think the majority of people that are on a bike, that's one of their side goals to training. Um, would that mean that they're actually going to be finding it harder to lose weight if their energy expenditure is going to be lower? Or would you then just recommend that they exercise at a higher intensity, so a higher power output, so the energy expenditure is matched? So actually, uh, eccentric cycling is fantastic for weight loss. We have seen a study actually shown that in adolescence, eccentric cycling is way more effective than concentric uh, for weight loss because it uh, grows muscle more and, you know, grow muscle even at rest, it, eats more, it uses more energy. Muscle growth by itself is a process that requires energy, 
eccentric cycling, because it doesn't require a lot of energy while you're doing it, it relies more on uh, beta oxidation. And that's basically using your aerobic system, so burning fat. Whereas concentric cycling, if you go a bit harder, you start relying on your uh, anaerobic location. So uh, you start burning your glycogen. And yes, both using a, a more fat at uh, while cycling and then at rest to build the muscle and then maintain the muscle that was built and also building the connective tissue, which is again, the for me, the elephant in the room that has is not discussed. That is good and it doesn't fatigue you. You can do it at higher intensity levels, which uh, means that you also get stronger. And uh, yeah. Yeah, so the basically that research is just indicating that the for people that have the capacity to change their body composition in terms of they've got body fat spare and they've got muscle that can be grown, that's that research then that you're citing is indicating that it could be beneficial for people to basically increase their muscle mass and lower their fat mass then. For uh, untrained amateurs, for cyclists, for clinical populations, if you simply do like two sessions per week of 10 minutes, you have an insane return of investment to <laughs> tell you that. Uh, you have basically a system that you are not really using. And if you start using it, you are going to see a lot of... Uh, adaptations for very very little time invested yeah so the the next question from that is with the hypertrophy and the the muscle growth when we're looking at then trained cyclists and at the elite level where we're looking at six seven eight percent body fat where they they don't have much fat to lose and weight is so important in terms of uh you don't want it you don't want necessarily hypertrophy for a lot of cyclists because it means weight gain and if there's not a subsequent increase in vo2 relative to body mass then this is going to actually be detrimental to performance so could you see that being an issue for cyclists or runners as well with any centric exercise the hypertrophy if uh yeah if that's getting to the point where they're gaining muscle mass so a lot of cyclists, their aim isn't to gain muscle mass. So could this be a problem for cyclists? Well, that's not, you know, uncontrollable. Uh, it's not like, oh, I cycled for a minute and I suddenly got all this muscle mass. I don't know where to put it, you know. Uh, you can modify, again, the intensity, the volume, the muscle length and not get muscle if you don't want muscle. But these cyclists, the elite level, all right, their connective tissues, again, their muscle fascia, their tendons, their ligaments are not as strong as they could be because they're not doing eccentric exercise. Imagine pulling a very heavy object with a rubber band versus a wire. So if you make your tendons stiffer, so stronger, you can the, the, the force that you produce in the muscle transfers more to the bone. So you get an improved uh, performance that way. And eccentric cycling excels at... Uh, triggering collagen synthesis and making the connective tissue stronger. So yes, you can make your connective tissue stronger, but not necessarily, and, and become more ec economic, become uh, better in performance, but don't overload the muscle to the point that it you're forcing it to grow and become bigger. Yeah, and then also, um, I'll just finish, finish this one because it sort of leads in, is one thing I say with, 
athletes I'm coaching, cyclists, uh, when they're using the gym is to just be mindful of the fact that the you can't gain weight just by going to the gym. You only gain weight by consuming more calories than you're putting out. So, But a lot of people gain weight because of the subsequent protein intake because we know that muscle is made of protein. So when you're doing this kind of exercise, which does cause more damage to the muscle and then necessitates more repair, do you then need to change your protein intake? Uh, and is this something that you've looked at or is this something that's controlled in these studies? Do they look at protein intake when the muscle damage is, has been shown quite different for this compared to concentric exercise? Muscle damage is not a problem after the first session. It's usually when you're unaccustomed and also you don't know what you're doing and you blow away the muscle with too much eccentric exercise and it gets sore. Uh, and that's what I showed in my first study. If you do at the same power level, if you do high intensity for a certain time, you get way more damage than if you do lower intensity for a longer time. So you, what you got to do is slowly familiarize yourself with eccentric exercises, eccentric cycling. And after the, that, we got this uh, magic protection that's called the repeated bout effect that protects us from further muscle damage. Of course, again, if we go crazy at one point, we're, we're going to get some mild soreness, but we're going to be protected from it from then on. Yes, you will need a bit more protein, however. Just speaking on that, anyone that's used the gym will know that phenomenon of just the first time that you do some weight training, resistance training, after a long time off, the DOMS delayed onset muscle soreness is horrendous. And then the next time it's pretty bad. And then after a few weeks, it doesn't exist unless you yeah suddenly decide that you want to lift really heavy that day but yeah anyone that's uses a gym will know that so it's interesting that the phenomenon is really similar with the eccentric cycling uh, i'll put two holes in your hypothesis with the connective tissues and the train cyclists potentially here those are both reasoned conclusions but doesn't mean they're not right uh obviously but um one thing I would point out is that endurance cycling is about like low forces that are repeated over and over and over for a long period of time. So probably want to see some experimental data before that. I'd probably trust it more with runners because, you know, they have the biomechanic bit there and saving energy in the cab and all that kind of stuff. With cyclists, I'm not sure that the, the forces are high enough in order to really tap into an adaptation, an advantage to that adaptation. I don't know. Um, and the other thing that I might kind of add to that is the idea that athletes are not fit. So if you were going to look at, say, the strength of a, uh, a world tour cyclist that would race in the Tour de France, their strength is probably going to be low compared to even fit individuals and that's fine that's if you were going to look at a lineman for a football team his cardiovascular ability relative to his weight is probably going to be horrible right like so there is kind of an understood offset uh, with athletes when they start to specialize like that so if we were to look at a cross-sectional study between maybe world to world cyclists and their connective tissues and you know just individuals who are recreationally fit, yeah, we might see those differences in their connective tissues where this world tour riders actually are worse off. But 
at the same time, they're winning races and that's all that really matters. Um, but we would definitely need some good experimental data to probably inform that hypothesis. I wouldn't say it necessarily would be incorrect, but then it gets down to the last question I, I really have here is getting down to the, the, would we do it? And the co- and that really comes down to a cost benefit. And so go around and I will, we'll each have our time thinking about when we would apply it, if we would apply it, that type of thing. So start out with you, Cyrus. Uh, I definitely came into this conversation very skeptical. Uh, number one, because uh, I start with skepticism with most interventions. And then particularly as it's something that I haven't seen many pros using. I had heard Luke Derbridge had used it before. Um, but yeah, normally if I see some pros picking something up, then I think, okay, this might be something that works and then start looking into it, into it from there. But certainly this conversation has opened my, yeah, opened my mind a lot more toward the idea. I would, as with most things, like to see a bit more research with train cyclists, but we could, I'm not going to hold my breath because it's going to just be, those studies are the hardest ones to do. And um, yeah, hopefully we can, see some of those come out as opposed to what I would change now as thinking about it as we were talking. And I think I would, I go to the gym twice a week, sometimes three times a week as is what I would do if I had the, the number one thing for me is I don't have access to uh, an eccentric bike currently. And I think that's going to be a big problem for everyone because as you said, there's only 10 less than 10 models of them out there. And yeah, there's not going to be many of those models in anyone's local gym or not many people have access to a lab with one. So for me, that would be the big problem, particularly with the travel. But if there was suddenly one in the gym that I go to twice a week, I think already I'd be jumping on it and doing the 10 minutes, as you said, um, because often at the gym I'll do something uh, similar, like I'll get on a rowing machine, which obviously has a very small amount of eccentric contraction, I hadn't even thought about it for that reason. It's more just something to do as a warm-up and something that's a bit of a different movement to just pedaling on a bike. The last thing I want to do when I go to a gym after riding for four hours that day is is jump on a, a bike usually. But in this case, if it's going to be something that might be more beneficial than doing squats, which we obviously haven't seen the the research for it yet, but I'd be prepared to, instead of jumping on the rowing machine, the 10 minutes to start my workout, I'd jump on an eccentric bike and use that. And it's something I would recommend to athletes for the the reasons that Georgios has hypothesized. Uh, Obviously, we don't have the concrete data yet. And I'd take those precautions that I sort of had and the the questions I asked there. um, Basically, the, the thing I take away from that is just be careful with it. Don't be doing too higher intensity. Don't be doing too longer bouts. And particularly to begin with because there is the the higher potential for muscle damage because it's simply just a new activity to begin with and a, a way the muscle hasn't contracted before very much so i'd be starting really easy and slowly slowly building but i can't do that because i don't have access to one but yeah if i did i think i would start implementing it just in in those small ways what about going back to our billionaire uh, scenario that we like to entertain a lot yeah if we had the billionaire i'd, I'd tell him buy one like if 
cost isn't an issue, I'd be saying, look, buy one. And when you're doing strength training, which I do recommend to most of my athletes to do, I'd say within that one hour of strength training that they're doing twice a week, I'd, I'd get them to jump on the bike for 10 minutes. Yeah, I think I'm similar, but I think I would add in the issue I find right now is the one study that is out there is a negative result. And so there isn't really anything to even start me in the right direction of how to use it. And so the issue might be of, yeah, you're trying these things and tweaking things with the athlete, but then you're taking time to figure all of that out. And maybe, you know, if you have someone in the Northern Hemisphere that is, has to get through three months of trainer, yeah, that's probably the time to do it. Uh, especially if they've been training a few years with you and you trying to add something in new. But I think for Perth, it'd be hard to get somebody in to do that. Yeah, I could see some cycling gyms here hopping on and getting one of those eccentric bikes in there and then having people come in. And, and if it's as easy as doing a 10-minute session, right? You get done with your ride, you, you head over to the uh, cycling gym on your way home and hop on for a little bit and get your... 10 minutes in and maybe that causes the stimulation you need. But yeah, we'll give last word to Jorgis. What do you think? Would you, you've obviously done this with world tour athletes and you've done it with athletes at the amateur level. So sounds like you, you're going with it or where, when wouldn't you use it? It's difficult to get access to equipment. Cyrus was right. That's hopefully going to change in the next 10 years. And hopefully we are going to start understanding how to use eccentric cycling better. Unfortunately, we cannot apply the principles that we have for concentric cycling or weights to it. I think the difference between concentric cycling and eccentric cycling is a difference between concentric cycling and weight training. So if you're trying to mix the two without much knowledge, you're going to fail. So I obviously have... Uh, Burned out some athletes. I have seen great results with others. So I'm understanding better how to train cyclists specifically at a higher level. So I would encourage caution. If you don't know what you're doing, you're probably going to make a mistake. Do not do sprints. Do not do it before your uh, normal training. It's going to impact it. Uh, there are a few things there that uh, you got to pay attention to. You got to understand first. After listening to Yorgos, it's a big, fat maybe if all the stars aligned. It really comes down to the cost-benefit, including the financial outlay needed to get into eccentric cycling. The equipment is the biggest barrier because we are talking thousands of dollars to get a bike that can power 100 to 250 watts with enough force to make adaptations possible. Additionally, time has to be taken into consideration. While at first glance it would seem easy to get in, for example, two 10-minute sessions per week. The lack of available literature around eccentric cycling interventions with trained cyclists potentially means more time will have to be spent on experimenting by the athletes and the coaches in order to find what load, frequency, and intensity provides the best performance improvement, if any. Thank you, Yorgos, for joining us and sharing your knowledge and mission to get more people doing eccentric exercise. I think you've raised the Performance Club's collective curiosity around eccentric cycling. So let's see where it goes.
from here. And how about you? Did you learn something new from this episode? If you did, awesome. This is a listener-supported podcast, so we would be stoked if you supported us by becoming a member of the Cycling Performance Club and providing a monthly contribution. With your backing, we can continue our mission to deliver the best in cycling performance knowledge and practical advice to you and the greater cycling community for a better sport. Click the link in the show notes to support us monthly, or if you prefer to make a one-off donation for now, you can buy us a coffee or three, also by clicking the link in the description. And with that, thanks for listening.